talking about some of the uh, labour action that's taking place in the province. Later on in the program, we're going to check in with a TransLink spokesperson and take a look at the transit job action moving forward. But Mike Smith, Vancouver Province columnist and host here on CKNW, joins me now to talk about uh, more of the ongoing uh, job action in BC. Mike, good morning to you. Hi, good morning, Jill. We actually had a little good news for a change yesterday on the labor front. There was a strike in the Saanich School District near Victoria. It's been dragged on for three weeks. 8,000 kids out of school in Saanich. Imagine being a parent there. Yeah. Three weeks, my God, that's that's pretty bad. They got a deal yesterday. So the I think the, the, the government, with the legislative session set to resume, in Victoria tomorrow, I think the government was signaling pretty clearly that they were going to step in here on this strike. I mean, 8,000 kids out of school is pretty bad, and maybe that spurred on negotiations. They bargained again yesterday. So these are the support workers in the Saanich school system represented by the CUP union. Uh, so it's like bus drivers, um, janitors, support staff in the schools. 500 workers on strike. The teachers, of course, members of a different union, the BC Teachers Federation, but they did not cross those workers' picket lines, so that shut the schools down. They got a deal yesterday, Jill. There's no detail on what is in the agreement, but the union leader here did say that it's within the bargaining mandate that had been laid down by the BC government for a 2% raise in each year of a three-year deal which is what it's been from the very start, which makes you wonder why they went through it and put yeah. parents through, heck, through three weeks for a strike. So we're waiting to see the details on that, but that's at least we got a little glimmer of good news yesterday with one strike settled, but there could be more to come. And you wrote about this, and it's in your column. I mean, this is, there was the, the people that you uh, had in your column. This is a student that transferred to another school. You don't want to be doing that when you're at that stage in your schooling. Yeah, I talked to a mom in Saanich, and her daughter is in grade 12, planning to go to university, very keen student, and she was worried about this. And, and in week two of the strike, it, with it looking like it was going to drag on for quite a long time, she actually switched school districts. So she actually went through all the paperwork and hassle and phone calls to uh, – enroll in a different high school in neighboring Victoria in order to continue her studies. So uh, probably probably that's kind of a minority, obviously, of people who took that extreme action, but it just shows you that for some parents, this was a real pain, and especially for grade 12 kids getting ready for post-secondary, but also for parents scrambling to find uh, child care. Uh, I was told, talked to some parents in Saanich, she said, like, Childcare was very difficult to find, and it was very expensive if you could find it. So uh, good news that this strike is over. But uh, the BC Teachers Federation still without a contract province-wide, and those talks are not going well. And, of course, as you mentioned, we got the, the transit strike going on in Metro Vancouver that could escalate this week, too. Uh, and do you think, is there any, can you make the connection between what just happened in Saanich as, is that foreshadowing of what could happen or what could be on the horizon for teachers? I think it does in a way because in in a similar way that the teachers are saying we're not happy with this mandate that the BC government has laid down of a 2% maximum raise we want more money on the table because we feel that we are underpaid and it's causing 
hiring and recruit, recruitment and retention problems. We can't hire enough people. We can't keep people. And those were the same arguments that the union made in this Saanich dispute that the BC Teachers Federation are making on the provincial stage. So in some ways, it almost seemed like this this fight in Saanich was kind of like a preview or a warm-up for perhaps bigger problems down the road. Now, I did speak to Terry Mooring uh, the other day, the president of the BC Teachers Federation. She was expressing disappointment, frustration. They're looking for a lot more than what the government's offering. There's no, There's been no strike vote for the teachers. There's no timeline for any kind of scheduled uh, job action or strike. But given the history of the, the BC Teachers Federation of a lot of strikes in the past, I think a lot of people are wondering if that's if they're if they're heading in that direction. And then, of course, you got other disputes going on with the, the transit workers. The union of the uh, University of Northern British Columbia has been on strike with a professor strike. We have an absolutely brutal strike in the forest sector, affecting thousands of workers who are um, working for Western Forest Products. There's potential for SkyTrain problems. Their talks have broken down. So there's a lot of kind of labor disputes that have broken out all over the place. And I think it's a problem for the government. Uh, well, especially since this was a government or is a government that's uh, that's the reputation is that they're very labor friendly. Was there a, a, a too much of a, of a leap of faith that if we look at teachers or even some of the other uh, scenarios, uh, but particularly teachers, did they think that this government was going to just throw buckets of money at them? Well, I think maybe the teachers were thinking after 16 years of liberal rule and all the fights they had with the liberals that now they get a labor-friendly government in power and it's payback time, you know? Like, and, and I think that in some ways they were led on in that regard by John Horgan because when John Horgan was in opposition as the opposition leader and Christy Clark was the liberal premier and she was fighting with the teachers' union, Horgan was standing literally shoulder to shoulder with the, with those teachers. When there was a strike five years ago in 2014, John Horgan was actually showing up at their rallies, standing up and encouraging them to keep going. There's a, a video clip that's being widely circulated on social media by a lot of unhappy teachers right now with Horgan standing up at a rally and addressing all these striking school teachers and saying, keep going, keep it up. And then he said, we've got your back. And the teachers loved it. They loved hearing that. And, of course, when he became premier, they thought, oh, this is, you know, it's payback time here now. And, but in fact, the the BC government, this new government with the NDP, has pursued a pretty similar bargaining line that the Liberals did. That they're not going to dump hundreds of millions of taxpayers' dollars on the bargaining table. They're not going to do special deals for the teachers on a two percent bargaining mandate that most other public sector unions have have already accepted. And very significantly, uh, they want to negotiate, renegotiate class size and composition rules that the teachers fought 10 years for in in court against the liberals after the liberals stripped that contract language out and the courts restored that contract language on class size the teachers wanted to remain there and the ndp are saying no you know there's nothing in those court rulings that says we can't renegotiate this and it's time to sit down and negotiate it. The teachers don't like it. No, I guess not. Yeah. Uh, what about the transit strike with job action? Yeah. And they're obviously going to be going forward very slowly with the overtime ban on certain days and, and taking those measures. What do you think? Do we, will we see, will it have to go to a full walkout and a shutdown of the system before government gets involved? 
I think it's going to get worse because the, the union has been very slowly ramping up the pressure here against the employer in this transit strike. And so far, the employer doesn't seem to be budging. Um, there were some talks last week that collapsed really quickly. The, the, the employer here, the Coast Mountain Bus Company, is saying they, they put a better offer on the table. Uh, the union took one look at it and walked out of the room pretty much. So I think we're going to see an escalation in, in, in that job action there. The union seems very uh, determined, united, and uh, determined to, to keep going and raising the stakes here. So I think that's you'll probably see that this week, and we could see some disruption on the bus service this week. Again, I think this is a problem for the government, especially politically for the NDP, because a lot of this, uh, if we get a real bad bus strike here, it could potentially uh, really inconvenience commuters in a lot of ridings that the NDP are worried about hanging on to. Like the sea bus disruption, for example, is disproportionately hurting people on the North Shore, of course, and the NDP are desperate to hang on to the seat of North Vancouver Lonsdale, which is Bowen Ma is the NDP MLA there. She knocked off a Liberal cabinet minister in the last election, and that is a seat the Liberals held for 21 years. That is a pretty safe Liberal seat. And in a riding in, in an election that could be very, very close again down the road, the NDP need to hang on to these seats. So if there's a real bad transit strike that could hurt, that could hurt the NDP's chances in a lot of these close ridings, I think that's going to increase pressure on John Horgan here to intervene. Do you also find, or are you hearing at all, is it causing some friction between the unions in that the offer on the table for bus drivers is much more than, say, for teachers or for other workers? And I know they're not, it's not all public sector workers, but do you think that's causing friction between them? I think behind the scenes it is because a lot of the unions, like the nurses, BCGEU, that kind of thing, they have settled under this mandate. So there have been 250,000 civil servants in British Columbia represented by various other public sector unions that have settled for this so-called 2-2-2 and deal, so a 2% raise in each year of a three-year deal. And they've settled. And a lot of them are saying, like, why do the teachers feel like they're special? Now, the teachers will say, look, we've got a lot of catching up to do here. The liberals were really mean to us for 16 years. We've fallen way behind the pay scale of other teachers in other provinces. We deserve a bigger raise. And I I think other unions will say, well, okay, I can understand that argument, but we've all settled for 2%. The other thing to keep in mind is this uh, Me Too clause that a lot of people may have heard about, that a lot of these other unions have settled for a 2% raise, and in most of those deals, if not all of them, there's a clause in there that says if any other union gets more than 2%, we get it too. So that's what's called the Me Too clause. And if that, was, if that clause was to trigger, it would cost the government an absolute fortune and probably unbalance the provincial budget. So there's no way they're going to do it. So I don't think the government can bend on, on that pay line. And there's, fights of, there's other fights going on. This could cost a lot of money, class size composition, whether they can uh, reduce pace, sort of shorten the pay scale ladder for teachers so they get raises quicker, that kind of thing, that are also sticking points. So I think this is a tough set, real tough set of negotiations coming up here with the teachers. All right. We will stay tuned for sure. Mike, thank you so much. Anytime. We are going to bring you up to date on the latest when it comes to the ban on overtime by Metro Vancouver bus drivers. They are doing specific days. As you know, there has been a ban on overtime by maintenance workers as well. Ben Murphy is a spokesperson with TransLink, and he joins us on the line now. Ben, good morning to you. 
Good morning, Jill. Uh, are you able to tell us so what to expect uh, today, Sunday, and then heading into the work week? Do we know yet as far as cancellations or what service disruptions are expected? So today the impacts are going to be fairly minimal in part because that's uh, the operator overtime ban doesn't apply today. It is still the maintenance overtime ban. And on a Sunday there's reduced service, so it's a bit easier to manage in that respect. There's also no CBUS cancellations. Tomorrow, though, is going to be quite a different story. Tomorrow, we will see the operator overtime ban come back into place. Uh, and we're also expecting uh, the biggest impact to CBUS that we've seen since this all began. Uh, so for any of your listeners who use CBUS, uh, we'll be putting some information out a little later this morning. But do check the timetables because we're expecting to move the timetable around to try and accommodate because there are said to be quite a large number of cancellations. It's going to mean that in the morning, uh, peak service will see 15-minute sailings and in the afternoon and during the day, sailings every 30 minutes. So it's going to be a a reduction in frequency, quite a significant one. Uh, And so really for anyone who uses CBUS, check those schedules. It is going to cause some confusion and disruption. Of course, ultimately here, that's what the union wants. And why are we seeing that uh, the worst uh, kind of disruption to CBUS at this point? Is that the accumulation of the overtime ban? Uh, It's to do with the maintenance overtime ban. So it is a little bit technical, but CBUS has minimum manning requirements set out by Transport Canada. Uh, And so if staff are unavailable for a particular reason, uh, often that can be backfilled either using the relief staff or overtime. So the overtime ban means that uh, staff aren't available to fill positions and because CBUS has so many staff that are required on the CBUS, if even one is unavailable, the CBUS can't operate. So um, it's actually a sort of staffing issue being able to backfill using overtime, which is causing the disruption and will cause the disruption tomorrow. All right, because I, and I'd heard at the beginning of the job action that the third crossing, the third vehicle on CBUS was only possible because of overtime and the engineer needed on that vessel was always an overtime shift. Is that correct? Uh, I'm not sure exactly on that, uh, but certainly uh, overtime is a component that CBUS use. Uh, Coast Mountain Bus Company has acknowledged uh, that there is a skill shortage for those skilled trades, and that's why the offer on the table uh, is significantly higher than public sector settlements in British Columbia. I mean, for the skilled trades, the offer on the table would see their pay boosted around $10,000 over uh, the next four years, bringing their pay packet to just short of $90,000. Uh, so it's very significant. It's much higher than you see for public sector settlements. Uh, and that acknowledges that there is a skill shortage in that area. Right. And that, but that's one of the, the sticking areas, isn't it, with the union saying even with that increase, they're still making less than their counterparts at SkyTrain? Well, at SkyTrain, I mean, the union sort of suggests that it's exactly the same. It's not. I mean, it's not an apples to apples comparison. Uh, those roles at SkyTrain do have a different union. It's different bargaining, different working conditions. They even have different training. I mean, at SkyTrain, the engineers and the mechanics there go through specific training for linear induction motors, for instance. So it, it, it is different, uh, but in acknowledgement, uh, that's why the offer on the table is significantly above public sector settlements. Uh, and that's you know the really important point here. Instead of 2%, which the rest of the public sector is getting, the offer for those skilled trades, very important positions, is above 3%. Right, okay. Um, 
Do you do you anticipate then? So Seabus tomorrow is going to see disruption. So at 30 minute sailings, is that weekend uh, like a weekend timetable? But that's going to be during the work week. Yeah, so what happens usually during the week, uh, during the day, it's every 15 minutes. Uh, so that's now going to be every 30 minutes. So uh, during the day, we may see some uh, crowding. Uh, we will see some impact there. The peak periods have been every 10 minutes. Uh, and now that's going to move to every 15 minutes, which is what the schedule was sort of several months ago in those peak periods. So we are going to see uh, some issues there and some impacts. The main thing, though, uh, that people who use CBUS need to be aware of is the timetable change because people have become used to a CBUS leaving at 10 past 7, 20 past 30 past, so forth. Uh, and up until now, we've just been removing individual sailings out of that schedule. Now, because there are such a significant amount of cancellations, the entire schedule is changing and so CBUS will be leaving it, you know, on the hour, 15 past, half past and so forth. So people are going to sort of need to readjust to that different schedule in order to ensure that they uh, meet the sailing. All right. Uh, good uh, information for people using uh, the CBUS. Uh, as for buses, is it too early? Like you said, the operator overtime ban starts up again uh, tomorrow. Is it too early to know or do you know which routes might be impacted? Uh, we don't know the specific of, of routes yet, and uh, we wouldn't know until the morning to get a real sense of it. Uh, bus checks are done uh, morning of. Uh, so what we've said uh, up until this point is that with the combination of the maintenance overtime ban and the operator overtime ban, we expect around 10% or so of service to be impacted. That seemed uh, about right on Friday. It varies by uh, depot to depot, so they're all going to be a little bit different. Um, but that's about the impact. So for customers, sign up to those transit alerts, social media. We do our very best to inform people of what's going on. Uh, also, Google Maps is a, a good tool to be able to just uh, put in the route and that uh, pulls information from TransLinkers for cancellations and any impacts. So there's constantly changes being made by Coast Mountain to try and limit the impact to customers. Uh, but it is difficult. It is somewhat unpredictable uh, until the morning of. All right. And as far as you know, with the overtime ban, is it something that the, the drivers are 100% on board or are there any drivers that are still taking overtime shifts? Uh, look, I, I couldn't I couldn't speak to that uh, specifically, I'm afraid, Jill. But I mean, the overtime ban uh, put in by the union is obviously making things uh, very disruptive for customers in this region, for transit users. From TransLink's perspective, uh, we want this to end as soon as possible. And so the message from Coast Mountain has been very, very clear. The union needs to come back to the table with more reasonable wage demands because I think, you know, something that hasn't been canvassed a lot in this is uh, where is this money to come from? Uh, because there's no pot of gold to fund extra wage increases well above public sector settlements, which we've already put on the table. So, you know, does the union want fares to increase? Do they want taxes to go up? Uh, or cutting bus service? I know earlier in the piece... The union was talking about reducing expansion. They seem to have dialed back that language uh, because they got criticised pretty heavily uh, for suggesting that, given it's somewhat contradictory to their argument that, uh, that overcrowding needs to be addressed. So you know, these are the questions they need to really start answering in a serious way because there's a very generous wage offer on the table uh, and the union needs to come back in job action 
uh, and become more realistic about those wage demands. And one other question, one of the things that has also been floated by the union, uh, if this is to escalate, is that drivers might stop collecting fares. Uh, What does the company do or is there any reaction from the company if that happens? Oh, look, we'll, we'll wait and see. I mean, we've not been given any notification that it's escalating to that degree. So uh, we'll, we'll take that as it, as it comes, Jill, and, and provide updates accordingly. All right. Uh, we will leave it there. Ben, thank you so much for the information this morning. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jill. Well, it is a large affordable housing conference, and it is underway right now. And uh, lots happening at this conference. So let's bring in Jill Atke, who is BC Nonprofit Association CEO, to talk a little bit more about this. Uh, Jill, thanks so much for taking some time with us this morning. Yes, thanks for having me on, Jill. What's been happening so far as far as the discussions at the conference? You know what, we're just about to get underway, so the conference kicks off in about 45 minutes here, but we certainly have a a jam-packed agenda today, uh, starting out with a keynote uh, talking about mixed-income communities. We're building many, many of these mixed-income developments right now, and he'll be focusing in on how to make sure we're, we're thinking about the people living in those communities and how to build community to make sure that everyone's included. And then at lunchtime, we've got uh, Selena Robinson, the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing, joining us for a discussion about the rollout of their 30-point plan. And then it just carries on for the next couple of days with uh, Senator Murray Sinclair is going to be joining us tomorrow. Uh, Shachi Curl is going to be unpacking the federal election results for us. Uh, and so we're, we're really excited about uh, the lineup we've got here. And, and do you think, d- does a conference like this, having so many people and, and a lot of people with a common goal and talking about affordable housing, does it actually lead to changes in the, in the marketplace, to changes that actually lead to housing being built? Yes, so this is really the one time of the year that the entire community housing sector comes together. So that's nonprofit housing providers and developers, co-op housing providers and developers, and then Indigenous housing providers come together. Part of the reason we we gather is for education and professional development, but there is a lot of uh, exchange of ideas exchange of new innovations in technology uh, and and as well as partnerships that have been established right uh, right here that do need uh, do lead to uh, new housing development so so we do see the results of it it's sometimes a little bit hard to connect the dots um, because a lot of it happens organically but but it's the one opportunity that the sector can come together each and every year uh, because you would think we, we already kind of know what some of the issues are whether it's it's government red tape, it's fees that are adding uh, huge uh, costs, up to 25% of costs of new builds. So we, we mm-hmm. can see areas where there are issues that we could relatively easily fix. But uh, are, are those types of things discussed as well? We, we do have a, a significant and an increasing focus on uh, on municipalities and the role that they can play in, in paving the way for affordable housing uh, developments. 
And so we've got more municipalities attending this conference than ever before. We extend an invitation to each and every one of them, 160 municipalities across the com- uh, conference or across the uh, across the province, and uh, and and make it easy for them to attend. But the work doesn't stop there. We're doing significant work with municipalities um, on on reducing barriers to uh, affordable housing developments, raising public awareness about the importance of these developments educating the public uh, so that they get out and support these uh, affordable developments when they come through because the province and the federal government can invest in these developments but if we can't get them through the approvals process then we're no further ahead than when we started. Right and are we talking about all types of housing in that uh, the the phrase affordable housing often it just it seems quite vague are we talking about social housing are we talking about subsidized and also market housing what are we actually focused on? We're focused at our conference on community housing. So that goes uh, right, everything from what we sort of consider shelter rate housing uh, and providing supports for people experiencing homelessness, all the way up to middle income, uh, middle income housing. Uh, and so the type of housing that we're building now is exactly that range. And that's supported both provincially and federally. Uh, so everything from deeply targeted shelter rate units all the way up to qualifying uh, incomes of $107,000 uh, is, is what we're building for right now. And that really is workforce housing. And we hear from employers all the time that they're having recruitment and retention challenges in the construction industry, uh, the education sector. Many, many sectors are experiencing these challenges in large part because of uh, affordability challenges. And so we need to make sure that we're building housing right across that continuum. Uh, Who do you think gets the biggest benefit out of a conference like this? Well, we're hoping that it's uh, it's right across the spectrum, all of our key stakeholders. So our primary focus, the three partner organizations, BC Nonprofit Housing Association, Community, uh, the Co-op Housing Federation of British Columbia, as well as the Aboriginal Housing and Management Association, our primary focus is on developing the capacity of the community housing sector, so nonprofits and co-ops right across the province. But we've got government stakeholders here from every single level of government. We've got the private sector represented here uh, who are delivering products to assist with us. There is not any social housing in this province that's developed without the private sector, and so they've got a key role to play as well. Um, and, and so we bring all of those stakeholders together to be talking about how we can be working together more efficiently, uh, more collaboratively, because at the end of the day, we know that there are a quarter of a million households in this province who are paying more than they can afford on rent, and we all have a responsibility uh, to solving those challenges. And do you also talk about things like modular housing or, or density and areas where it seems like there, there's oftentimes a struggle to get the community on board? Yeah, so community acceptance is a big, big part of it. Many municipalities, particularly larger urban municipalities, but, but certainly smaller municipalities as well, are, are grappling with change. And, and the shape and the nature of our cities is changing. And sometimes that change is, is tough. So part of the conversations we're having and the sessions that we're having are really focused in on how do we help to prepare communities 
for change. How do we demonstrate what the benefits are? And there are community-wide benefits to ensuring that everybody has access to safe, secure, and affordable housing. Uh, so, so a lot of those community conversations need to happen, uh, but as well conversations with municipalities uh, because they have a responsibility to ensure their own citizens uh, have access to affordable housing. All right, uh, we will leave it there. I know uh, the premier is going to be. Is he the premier's there today? Is he? Is he not? The minister is here today. Unfortunately, the premier could not attend, uh, but certainly had a very welcome and receptive crowd when he was here last year. And we look forward to connecting with him again to discuss the issues. All right. Uh, Sounds like it's going to be a busy, busy three days. Uh, Jill Atke, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Appreciate it. Great. Thanks so much. Well, looking out the window today at the weather that is just outside our studios, it is gray. It is a soaker when we're talking about the rain, as you've been hearing in the traffic reports. There have been flooding on roads. Some of the streets are closed. So I can't imagine that people living in Oppenheimer Park or anywhere where people are living in tents are all that comfortable. But as we know, it is an issue that affects a lot of municipalities and cities. And in Vernon, there is an idea being put forward as as to how to perhaps help people living in tents, uh, help the homeless population of that city. And joining me to talk a little bit more about this and about the proposal is Vernon City Councillor Scott Anderson, who is on the line with us. Councillor, thank you so much for being with us. No, you're quite welcome. Uh, before we get into the, the proposal uh, moving forward, how big of an issue is homelessness right now in Vernon? I think uh, throughout you see, it's it's uh, quite a large issue. We don't have clearly the scale that uh, the Vancouver is suffering, but we certainly have it uh, uh, in the city. And at the at this point, as far as homeless, uh, the homeless population and people who are living in tents, where are they? Um, people that are living in tents are living in tents in in parks, uh, sometimes back alleys, um, but primarily um, they are living uh, well in in. Uh, Polson Park. Uh, in 2015, the Supreme Court made it mandatory for municipalities to allow camping if there were if there were no beds available. Um, and then subsequent to that, because of the issue in Victoria, uh, the, they said that although camping is allowed, uh, municipalities are allowed to uh, require that they pull down the tents each morning um, and then put them up at night. The reason being is that uh, it disallows, it doesn't allow a tent city to develop. Um, tent, cities, tent cities are clearly um, cause a great deal of um, harm in the in the surrounding areas, as well as for the people that are living in them. So, so this is not so much to solve the homelessness issue. That's something that's under the purview of the uh, provincial government. Uh, the provincial government, with both the BC Liberals and the NDP, have failed to. Uh, you know, substantively address the issue. And um, sorry, go ahead. go ahead. Well, I'm just so and so. Your proposal then is is to move or to suggest the people that are currently camping in Polson Park a move to City Hall land. Yeah, I mean, ultimately the goal of this is to give the park back to the people who pay for it each year, and that's the taxpayers of Vernon. Um, I, I think part of the although a sub sub intent is to bring the issue of camping and crime and. Uh, the degradation of civic life, um, as well as open drug use, right home to City Hall. You know, we've been hearing valid complaints from the areas surrounding the park right now that uh, crime is going up, 
Um, this is, I think, sending a message to the citizens of Vernon that we, we've got skin in this game, too, that we're also concerned with it, and we're putting it right on our doorstep. Um, and and I, I'm fairly certain that many of the able-bodied campers, and this is a very complex uh, subject, there, there's, it has to do with addiction and mental health uh, mainly, but there are a number of able-bodied campers who, who just access our services and, and really in, a, in an economy crying out for labour have no intention of getting a job. And, and my hope is that those people, when they're uh, removed from the park, will choose not to camp on, on City Hall and, and move on. And as it is now with the campers that are in Polson Park, do they follow that rule of picking up in the morning and then setting up again in the evening? Well, we learned the other day from the head of uh, Vernon Bylaw that, that uh, I mean, Vernon Bylaws are not an inconsequential organization. It's a $1.2 million budget annually. Uh, almost half of their complaints were dealing with the with the street and trench. And I use the term street and trench, not homeless, because it's really not a homelessness issue. Um, you know, very often, very often you, uh, you hear that, uh, okay, I guess in 2015, we had uh, a number of, uh, fire, uh, people from the fires, refugees from the fire, dozens of them lodged in, in our municipal buildings and the number of police files were exactly zero, um, and, and by law, there was simply no strain on the economy. They were actually a ben- net benefit to the economy. Um, and in this case, when you have the RCMP a spike in crime, um, as well as uh, half our bylaw budget going to, to um, basically babysitting a small segment of the population, it's time to, uh, I mean, you can't call it a homelessness issue. This is not the 1930s when families were destitute um, in the, you know, in the camps outside of Vernon, with no hope of getting a job and having lost everything. This is a completely different issue. It has to do with drug addiction and mental health and, and a certain segment of the society who simply don't want to work. And, and there's a big difference there, isn't there, in that uh, w- with somebody dealing with addiction, with somebody dealing with mental health issues, that is much different than somebody who chooses to. And there are people, and there are people in Oppenheimer Park as well, who have been offered housing and uh, have said they don't want to live somewhere where you might have to share a kitchen or share living space. They'd rather be in the park. That, to me, is somebody who's choosing to live in that situation rather than in some other kind of accommodation. So there is. it's not as though we can say everybody living in in these encampments uh, are facing the same issues. No, I absolutely agree. And, and with the two, with regard to the two main issues, which is addiction and mental health, um, that unfortunately is under the provincial government. Um, they have their, both the jurisdiction and the resources. Municipalities simply don't. We, we cannot um, tackle uh, drug treatment. Uh, we don't have the resources. We don't have the, any, we don't have the jurisdiction to do it. Um, Unfortunately, the, the provincial government is concentrating on what I consider palliative care. Um, they're keeping addicted folks as safe as possible, and, and they've got all their eggs in the harm reduction basket. Um, you know, things like overdose prevention site, free needles, uh, malazone, all of which are, are good uh, because they maintain a level of safety, but they don't do anything to address the actual addiction. Um, the extent to which the provincial government is, is providing treatment amounts to a couple of weeks of, of really what is detox, uh, followed by uh, um, a, a drug substitute regime. That does nothing to address the 
the root causes of, uh, not the root causes, but the addiction itself. And I think as long as we are going along that path, um, nothing is going to be done. It, it's simply not going to have an effect on the addiction crisis. Uh, with regard to mental health, that is also under juris- um, uh, provincial jurisdiction. Um, and that really leaves the municipalities with very limited jurisdiction. We have bylaws and we have uh, zoning um, enforcement that we can do. But it doesn't leave us a lot of, of ways to deal with this other than enforcement. Um, and we do, you know, as a Vernon City Council, I have a duty to the everybody in Vernon, not just the street entrenched population. I have a duty to the people who see civic de- degradation going all around them, the merchants downtown who... Uh, whose uh, client base is being chased away, all of those people also have rights. And uh, I'm trying to, frankly, with with two, I'm, I'm changing, not only moving or uh, making a motion to move people to City Hall, but I'm also proposing that we shorten the hours of camping um, there. My intent is to resource some balance here. We're putting enormous resources into a very small number of people um, and in the process, we're ignoring the concerns and valid concerns of the great majority of the population. So I'm just trying to restore some balance in, in that equation. And how do you think moving people to the city hall grounds would help solve the problem? Well, I mean, as I said, it brings the it brings the issue front and center to city hall and to politicians and to uh, the administration, all of whom are, are trying to deal with this. Um, and it sends a message to the rest of Vernon that we're also... Um, we also have this problem. We're not aloof from it. We're not sitting on a hill looking down and saying, you know, well, gosh, just live with it. Um, and it, it may even uh, spur the political class to uh, to be more uh, um, aggressive in its uh, solutions. Uh, you would need uh, the support, I know, of other councillors. Have you heard? I know a, a couple of other councillors have come out, one uh, saying that changing the times uh, would, wouldn't actually uh, help anything if you change the camping times. Uh, have you heard from your fellow councillors? Um, I've heard from some of them, yes. I, I know that uh, um, a couple of them are opposed to it. Um, I'm not trying to, to help the situation. I think that I've never heard an addict say that they quit drugs because things got easier for them. Um, to that their lifestyle got easier almost universally and I'm, I'm talking about my own family as well almost universally they say that the things got just too hard and they just made a conscious decision to seek help and get out of it so i'm not attempting to make life easier for folks um, who have chosen or or can't function um, in society I'm, I'm trying, if anything, to push them toward seeking help. But the main object of this is to is to uh, protect the the vast majority of, of citizens who are suffering from, you know, increases in crime, as I said, civic de- degradation. Right, and and you mentioned this a bit, and it is the provincial uh, jurisdiction for treatment, and that if somebody in Vernon needs treatment or gets to that point that they want treatment, is it available for them? Well, theoretically, it is. Um, theoretically, they can go on a wait list. Um, but I mean, if you know addic- addictive behavior, when somebody asks for help, who's an addict, um, they're looking for help in that moment. They're not looking to be put on a wait list five days down the road. Um, and when they do get help, it's generally, as I said, a very short time period that really amounts to detox, um, followed by what they call, I'm not sure what the terminology is, but it's a day program where they voluntarily come in and, and uh, 
either get a drug substitute or or get counseling of some sort. And I'm not even I, I don't even think that's very, um, you know, we've adopted what's what is commonly known as a housing first, you know, like BC housing, housing first program, where the, the thesis is that if you are um, stabilized in a in a stable environment, it's easier to seek help and it's easier to move on with your life. Um, the trouble, and I've talked to the the founder of Housing First, Sam Sembris, um, back in the '70s in New York, and he, uh, I didn't talk to him in the '70s in New York. This is when he uh, first proposed the the thesis, and he's his take is that what we're really doing here is housing only. So we're essentially supplying a house and stopping at that point, and not supplying the wraparound services that are required to. To uh, deal with the addiction itself, um, that to me is enabling. And when will this uh, will it, this come to council for discussion, or, you, or will it? Uh, when will that happen? I made a notice of motion at the last council. That means it'll come. Uh, I'll be presenting uh, the motion uh, in the next council meeting on uh, next Monday. All right, Not uh, this we'll... coming Monday, the one after that. All right, sounds good. We will leave it there, uh, Councillor Anderson. Thank you so much for your time this morning. You're quite welcome.